You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's Books and Comics Show here for Star Trek. And I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing. And I'm so glad to have with me, uh, as he is every single time, the one and only Casey Pettit. How are you, Casey? I am doing very well and I'm so excited for our discussion today. We just had a nice little pre-podcast discussion that just got me fired up for this one. So really looking forward to getting into this book. Uh, man, I'm, I, it's, it is one of those things where you were like, we should have just been recording that. <laughs> so now that we've piqued everybody's interest that we're so excited, we are going to be doing something uh, we haven't done in a very long time, which is talking about a nonfiction Star Trek book that's just come out recently. Um, we had Star Trek First Contact, the making of the classic film be released and we're really excited to be talking about that in our feature tonight and i think one of the things too casey you know we don't often get an opportunity to talk about one of the films here Mm -hmm. uh we did all the way back uh way back when when we talked about the the making of star trek insurrection book that had come out uh you know and so we did that that was a long time ago uh, but we're also going to get the opportunity to do this again next year because uh, the book coming out uh, by the Tenudos about Star Trek Two is going to be coming out. So we'll get the opportunity one more time. But before we do that, one, we've got some news to talk about because we've got two new comics that have come out. Uh, so we're going to be reviewing those. Uh, but before we get into all that... We want to say thank you for listening. We're so excited to have you here with us on Literary Tracks, and we would really appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to the show that you subscribe, you'll get our episodes as soon as they drop. And if one of those places is like Apple Podcasts or Spotify that allows you to give star ratings or reviews, hey, hit us up with a five star. That would be great. And we'd also love a review there on Apple Podcasts, and then we read those out to everyone on the show. You can also find us on social media all over the place where we'd love to interact with you. We've got Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've also got a listener's discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference that you can join. You can talk to listeners from all over the world. Casey and I love interacting with people there. Uh, You can also find us online at Trek.FM where you can see all of the different shows that we're doing. And then, of course, we would really appreciate it if you would go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm, become part of our team. We have some great associate producers here on Literary Treks, Casey Pettit being one of them, as well as Greg Rosier, and they help support the network, making sure that not only Literary Treks, but the entire network can keep happening. 
without listeners just like Casey or Greg, we can't do this. In fact, we're actually below the level we would like to be at. Uh, and that allows us to really do this well each and every month. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can also be part of our team. And we actually are going to be revamping that. Um, and in fact, over on the 602 Club, Christy and I have been talking about, uh, we have at least four different uh, specialty episodes that are going to be coming out only for Patreon members. Uh, so those will be things that we are looking to be doing and just giving back to you who help us out. Uh, each and every month. Well, Casey, we have come to the end in the Stargazer comic with the final issue. It did drop Stargazer 3. Uh, I was actually hoping we were going to get one more issue because I felt like, in all honesty, the comic probably could have used it to really resolve and maybe even set up more so where we're going to go with the characters. But how do you feel like... This went because one of the main contentions that we kind of had was that there were a lot of things that kind of felt like they dropped the ball from season two on into season three. So how are you feeling now that the comic is at an end? Um, I, I, I'm a little underwhelmed, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I I do wish there there was more because I, I really did after, you know, we, we were kind of hard, I think, on the first uh, issue of this one, but by this, after seeing the Picard trailer and then, you know, reading issue two, I was a lot more pumped for this series of comics. And so to have it end after three was, was a bit of, a bit of a letdown. I feel like they could have, I don't want to say stretched the story more, but kind of told a, a, a more fulfilling story. You know, this, this issue wrapped up what we've been seeing well. <laughs> um, but I was kind of left wanting, wanting to know more. Like, why would we care about some of these characters? Um, I, I'd, I'd like that we got a little bit of a conversation between Picard and Seven to to kind of help lead her back to Starfleet. Although at the end of the comic, spoiler spoiler alert: if you haven't read it, she does not end up in Starfleet yet at the end of this comic. But um, it, it's clear that that's where it's leading. But I don't know. I, I feel like it could have told more. And the one thing that leaves me hopeful is, you know, and I'm sure we'll kind of talk about it briefly here is, is the epilogue, which does, it feels like it's setting up something and I'm very excited to see where that could go. Yeah. I, I think, I think you've kind of pinpointed a lot of the frustrations that I guess I have with the series now that it's done. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think, that this still makes no sense for Picard. Uh, you know, we end season two where that man has, it seems like, finally come to the other side of himself uh, in a way that he had never been able to before uh, and that he had been perpetually kind of stunted, uh, you know, arrested, developed uh, Picard. And that season had finally cracked that open and allowed him to finally move forward to a place where, you know, he was going to be able to fully live life in a way he hadn't because he had always kept a part of himself reserved. And this freedom uh, from freeing himself from the guilt of what had happened with his mother was going to allow him to be able to finally have a relationship. And that relationship was going to be with Laris. Uh and that's nowhere to be seen in this comic. And, and in fact, 
he apparently has the, you know, 47 year itch where he's got to get back into space uh, because, you know, that's a thing. And um, so that's something that we're, yeah, I, I'm just left very underwhelmed as to how this sets up, you know, uh, the season three. You know, I think this definitely does a better job in the sense of um, kind of moving us in a direction with Seven, you know, that we're going to get her being back in, in Starfleet. You know, uh, I, she's able to see uh, the way in which she, as a Starfleet officer, could actually make a difference because of her experience, because of the empathy, I think, that she was able to experience in, you know, season two. And yet again, there's there's almost like a, a going back from where she was at the end of season two and here. Um, and yeah, I mean, the big revelation in the end, you know, I don't want I don't want to spoil everything for this comic because I do think people should read it. But I do think, you know, we want to talk about the end, which is that. She's contacted by Admiral Janeway. Who wants to talk with her? And so do you think that leads to possibly another mission um, and, an, and another mini comic series? Or do you think that leads directly into what we get in, you know, uh, season three? I, I kind of hope that it would actually lead into another comic because we have. Well, like two or three months before Star Trek Picard season three comes out and you a lot of times these comic miniseries they'll have uh you know a comic for each month leading up to and sometimes overlapping by an issue with an episode or two of of the new show that's coming out and so now we've kind of got this gap again between having star trek picard content to read you know until we have the content to watch and so i kind of i kind of hope that that Janeway's kind of got a mission for her and maybe sponsors, I, I, I would assume that Janeway sponsors Seven's admittance into Starfleet or commissioning as a Starfleet officer. Um, but I'd like to see something there because I, I just, I doubt we're going to see Janeway in Picard. I would love to, but I I doubt that's where they're going to go. I know Kate Mulgrew has been teasing that it's always possible to see her in live action again, but that's just not something... I don't think that that's something they would do in the Picard series. I feel like they would save that for her own. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to just leave this thread hanging. I really do hope that there's like another comic or something, mm -hmm. even a one shot or something. Right. Just to, to finish that off. Yeah. I mean, you know, and we, of course, we always have this the seven and Rafi question that hasn't really been answered either. Um, you know, uh uh, you know, I, it does. It, in some ways, it does make me kind of wonder if you know. We know Seven is a commander on the Titan. A still so stupid. <laughs> I mean, just so stupid. Um, I just ugh. probably should have just put her on the Enterprise if we're gonna. <laughs> I get, why? Why isn't it just the Enterprise E? Yeah. Or the Stargazer, since that's where she ended uh, up on at the end yeah, of the last season. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what this series is about. Yeah, instead, they're going to show the Enterprise F, which is the most god-awfully ugly starship I've ever seen. Um, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to let my flag fly 
the choices that they they made with the Titan A are ridiculous. Um, it actually just looks like a student, like your kid stepped on a Play-Doh version of the Enterprise A and squished it, and that and that's what you got. It, it's just like, come on. I mean, seriously, it, it, what what are you doing anyway? That's I let I'll let that rant go now. But yeah, uh, so we know that she is going to be on the the Titan A, uh, and she's a commander there. And so the fact that you could possibly see some sort of series that carries on further into this part of I guess the twenty fifth century that we're at in, um, maybe I don't really. I mean, who cares? It doesn't even matter. Yeah. But. Somebody will yell at me on Twitter for being wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you could definitely see them doing a series with, with Seven carrying on the legacy of this time period and, you know, being able to have, you know, depending on what happens in season three, different characters from that era, whether it be from Deep Space Nine or Voyager that want to come back or, you know, any of those, you could utilize all of that, right, if you wanted. So, um but I don't know. All in all, I think if you had to give a rating, maybe not just to this comic, but to the series overall, is there some where you would land uh, for the Stargazer miniseries? Yeah, I as a as a miniseries, I think I'd probably give it a three or three and a half. You know, the artwork is gorgeous in these. Yes, um, and, it really is. And I yeah, and I feel like that alone really raises the bar for these comics um but yeah the the story i mean the story was fine but just as a plug for you know between seasons two and three of picard i don't feel like it led up or it it lived up to expectations that we would have for something set between the series so um yeah i think i'd settle on a three and a half warp nacelles uh, on on that uh whatever class of starship that is i can't remember the the constellation class ships where would you land i think i think probably where you did uh i would say it's a three out of five and i i think it it gets the three because the artwork here puts it above just being average at a two and a half um but i, I think if if we were to say story-wise it's probably a two and a half and yeah. part of that just there's so many frustrations that I have with the the storytelling as it relates to Picard as a series. And, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about that here in the sense that Picard as a series is really wildly uneven, um, you know, and so I it makes sense then that a lot of the material around it is wildly uneven. The comics have been, I would say the books for the most part have been phenomenal. I, mm-hmm. You know, in all honesty, the books that we've covered uh, in, in the Picard series have actually been better than the series itself for the most part. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, and part of that is I think, you know, the writers of those books truly understand the Star Trek universe in a way that a lot of people writing and, uh, the television don't seem to, and I'll say except for Lower Decks and uh, the Strange New World series. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which is really, is, is very interesting. So, uh, well, Casey, we do have one more comic here to talk about, and we're continuing the Star Trek Alien series that they've been doing, uh, and this one is Ferengi. It's just a one-shot. 
And, uh, you know, this is kind of set right smack dab in the middle of DS9, uh, probably somewhere between, you know, seasons four and five or five and six, maybe. This deals with Quark, Moogie, Rom, and, uh, you know, Ferengi female liberation. So uh, how, did, how did you feel this comic does? It's the, the longer I've sat with it, it's kind of gotten better for me as I was reading it. I wasn't super into it, but um, it really is kind of a fun story. It's always fun to go back to Deep Space Nine, especially during this time period. It's got a lot of cameos from our DS9 characters, which, I mean they're literally just cameos they they don't really do anything for the story but you know and it, it, it's the typical ferengi quark family story as well i mean this is something i feel like we would see on an episode of deep space nine yeah uh which you know like i said as, as i've sat more with it it kind of makes makes this one a little bit more endearing for me i've never cared a lot for the Ferengi. And so I think that was part of what was in my brain as I was reading, reading this through. But I mean, this is another one where it's got pretty decent artwork. And then it's just, like I said, it's got the cameos brunt shows up. Um, you know, there's a couple odd things like instead of gold pressed latinum, they call it gold plated. I think they call it gold plated latinum bars or something like that. It's, it's kind of strange, but you know, uh, as a story, I mean, it was, it was fine. It was kind of funny in parts, but, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of typical of these one shots, you know, like the, they don't do anything for the greater Star Trek narrative, I guess. They're just a fun little glimpse of these alien, uh, cultures that we've seen and fun little stories, I guess. Yeah, I think that you pinpointed that this does kind of feel like it could fit as an episode of Deep Space Nine, so that's a plus for it. Um, I think that where, for me, the more I've sat with it, the more, like, I guess, uh, meh-ish is a word I hate, but it's, that I feel about it in the sense that it just covers thematic elements we've already done in Deep Space Nine, yeah. Uh, and that we're already resolved by Deep Space Nine, and therefore there's not really anything new to add here uh, in the comic and, and what it does. It, it's all material that we've already covered in the series. And therefore, it makes me kind of wonder why they didn't go a different route. Um, because, you know, Deep Space Nine is specifically already mined all of mm -hmm. this. Um, and so... Um, but it's not bad. I mean, you know, the art is very 1970s inspired, which I think kind of works for the Ferengi in their flamboyant fashion. Uh, so, you know, all in all, I mean, it's it's fine. Like, I think that's the thing. It's like, this is not a comic, which I think, you know, if you like the Ferengi or you just like Star Trek comics, yeah, you'll probably read this. Otherwise, I don't have any reason to really recommend this at all to anyone because if you've watched Deep Space Nine you've legitimately you know uh, you've seen this pretty much play out so um, yeah I mean it, it, it's good uh, in that what I mean what would you rate it do you think if, if you had to um, if you had to give it a rating yeah it's I mean I, I mean I'd probably go in, in the two and a half range just because it 
it's fine. I mean, there's nothing bad about it except, you know, like, yeah, you, like you said, it, it really does retread what we already got on the show. Um, but I also love Deep Space Nine and some of the nostalgia of just going back there. And so, like, you know, seeing it rendered in comic form sometimes can be a lot of fun. So, yeah, two and a half. I mean, I, am I glad I read it? I guess. Do I wish I hadn't read it? No. Like, you know, it was fine. Yeah, I think so. I I mean, I'm probably right there with you. I, I don't know if I can really add anything to that. It's exactly how I feel about it. You know, it's two and a half out of five. It's 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 fine. It's there. Uh, if you're into, you know, Deep Space Nine and Ferengi, yeah, go for it. Um, you know, you don't really care. I don't think you're really going to be missing anything. So, um, but uh, I'm really excited uh, Casey, for us to dive into the making of Star Trek First Contact. So what do you say we just dig right in? Well, Casey, I'm so excited that we are uh, here tonight and we are going to be talking about, I think, uh, just something that we don't get a ton of um, these days, which is uh, Star Trek books uh, that are nonfiction. Uh, And this one that we are going to be talking about and reviewing is Star Trek First Contact, the making of the classic film by Joe Fordham. And uh, this is um, first, I just I want to talk, you know, this is a coffee table book. So before we get into anything, um, how did you like the layout of the book, the way it was presented, um, you know, taking off the dust jacket and seeing what's actually on the book itself? How did you feel they did with just the presentation of this book? This book is gorgeous. <laughs> I, uh, when, you know, when it showed up at my house, I couldn't wait to take the plastic off and you know start flipping through the pages yeah i mean like from you know like you said underneath the dust jacket to the you know to the pages you know right inside the cover all the way through it's just visually encapsulating or i don't even have words for it you know like i just it's just really a really nice book to look at and there's a you know we're, we'll get into the 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 text and stuff that's in it, but the the nice thing about it is that it's not merely a picture book. There's a lot of really fun information in here, but it's also not like a, a long or hard read either. It's 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 like reading some magazine articles, and, and I mean that in a good way, you know, of uh, you know just just the different things that went into making this movie and. Um, this was a, a very smart book for them to to do, I think, given that it's arguably the most popular next generation film and, and even at some point inside Marina Sirtis had said that, you know, as far as fan favorites go, it's this one or Star Trek Two. And so I think doing this book at at this time when Picard's such a popular character right now with him on TV, you know, it's a, a very smart move for them and and the the way they package the book is just, yeah, like I said, it's, it's visually stunning. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, one, I think you definitely pointed out one of the reasons why you bring this book out and why we kind of mentioned, uh, you know, during the new segment, you know, the, the next one they're doing is Star Trek 2. So, uh, yeah, uh, it totally makes sense why these are the two films that you are doing this for. And 
you know, the presentation of the book, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's gorgeous. I mean, you, you know, you, you take off the, the dusk jacket and the picture that's on the front of the book is that really cool, uh, teaser poster, you know, with the Enterprise mm-hmm. E, you know, warping ahead of the, uh, board cube, which is, is such a great teaser poster anyway. Uh, so evocative of what the film is going to be. And then, you know, like you said, just the presentation of, as uh, a coffee book, table book, it's it's really well written. Um, it's mm-hmm. I think it's easy for anybody who is even just a minor Star Trek fan to be able to get into, you know, everything that they're talking about and the creation of all that they're doing. You know, they, they have some great conversations uh, in, in the book about the different elements of the film that we'll get into as we go through it. But yeah, just the presentation itself is great. I think the layout, the choices that they made for pictures is really great. Um, and, and so I, I was really pleased with the book that we got, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of these type of books, obviously with star Wars and whatnot. Um, and you know, this I think is, is right there with the rest of them. Um, you know, uh, What's different about this than, say, some of the Star Wars ones that have obviously come out recently is that, you know, we are dealing with a film that's been out for a very long time. Uh, And so we're also, you know, getting not the most detailed information like this isn't overly detailed um, for those that are looking for that. Um, but I think it gives a fair representation of the creation of the film while giving a wonderful layout of, you know, everything that uh, you would expect in this type of book. And again, great behind the scenes pictures. Some of that I had never seen, especially of of like the enterprise E model, those kind of things where it's completely unlit and you're just, you know, that kind of stuff is, is fantastic. So um, yeah, in that sense, I think it's really well done. Um, I was actually surprised, Casey, you know, that one of the things that the book does is it talks about, obviously, a little bit of the history of TNG and its ending. um, But they actually talk a lot about, you know, coming off the end of the series and into generations. Um, And then, of course, because we have the same writers of Brandon and Braga uh, coming into this film from generations, I thought Mm -hmm. it was great to be able to hear some of their conversations and, and some of the things that actually they took lessons from, you know, generations into first contact to try and craft a story that was even better uh, than the one that they had given in generations where they, you know, they like the film, but they also felt like that there were some deficiencies, we should say. Yeah. I, um, I really liked that. They went through that. It just added a lot. I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody's going to argue about how how much better of a movie First Contact is than Generations. And I always really liked Generations. I, you know, there's it's it's obviously got its problems, but it's it's a beautiful movie. I love the music. Um, but they were just coming off a TV show. A lot of them. I mean, even the screenwriters, Brandon Braga and um, I think it was Ron Moore, uh, it was like their first movie that they'd ever written. And I always kind of felt like Generations, it's kind of like Insurrection is a great episode of Star Trek. Um, Generations would have been a 
a, a very good fina- like series finale for Next Generation than First Contact be their theatrical debut. But, you know, it, it was just really nice hearing the writers talk about how, you know, like you said, they're, they were proud of Generations. They, you know, thought it was a good movie. It obviously performed well in the box office because Star Trek was really at its peak and, and having uh, Next Generation had just ended. But they also, you know, as proud as they were of it, they also weren't totally satisfied and, and wanted to really push the next one further and learn from that first one and and take those lessons into this next movie. And it was just, it was kind of cool seeing that they weren't taking this for granted, this opportunity to write Star Trek movies and, um, you know, they they weren't just out there like for the cash cow that is Star Trek. They were, they really wanted to make a good movie and, you know, I need to go back and reread that insurrection one from, from years ago to see kind of like the, <laughs> what their, what their thoughts were going into that one again. But, you know, I just, I really liked where their heads were at, I guess, you know, as they, as they came off of generations and were trying to move into first context, they only had, they didn't have much time to to make this one. I mean, even the right. music that they touch on a little bit, Jerry Goldsmith didn't have enough time to score this movie. And so he brought his son in to help score some of the, the parts of the movie. And to think about like, it was two years after generations came out, I believe that first contract first contact was in theaters and they pumped out a really great movie in a very short amount of time. And that's, yeah. you know, there's nowadays there's years between these movies. So like that was pretty impressive. And you got TV writers, you know, they're used to writing mm-hmm. for weekly television. So they're probably used to doing things like that. But I'm just glad they spent some time on kind of the origin of this movie and coming up with um, the story that takes place after the series and after generations absolutely uh and and i think you know one of the hallmarks of first contact as a film is the way in which it and the writers you know talk about this is that it takes into account okay what were the successes what were the things from the the series that we need to bring forward into this to build off of and in many ways you know i think uh those were the questions that Nicholas Meyer asked about Star Trek when he did Star Trek Two, and 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 he really keyed in on those ideas. And I think, in many ways, that's the success of First Contact is that it keys in so much to the things, the things that were successful in the series, and the questions thematically for the 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 characters that make this successful. Because you know when we deal with what Picard deals with in the, in the story and we deal with what, you know, data deals with in the story. Um, and just the, the question of the Borg, you know, that was always there as well. Those are all the big questions that you get. And I think that, uh, them thinking about those things specifically and then inserting them into the film and using them as main key story points is really important, which, you know, leads me, you know, the, to another thing, Casey, that I think the book does really well is, is talk through, how they came to the story itself here uh, and the story points where they were going to place this um, in the sense of history for Star Trek and how they came to the idea of using first contact as this main time travel point. Um, 
but also I think, you know, in just uh, the way they came to the idea of like needing the Borg queen and those type of things in the story, which, uh, and even just, and, and many fans have heard this, but about the positioning of the characters in the story, you know, who's on the ship, who's on the planet and, and all that, you know, I think, they talk through all of those things in in this book, which is, of course, really important for having a better understanding of, you know, the making of this film. And again, why I think it's a successful film. They obviously threw around a lot of ideas, starting with they knew they wanted to do a time travel movie, because that is something that's pretty key in Star Trek and Star Trek's history. And you know, they pointed out Star Trek four. And I mean, there's numerous times in the original series where time travel played a key. I am glad they did not go the medieval times route. Um, and that Patrick Stewart had yeah. the wherewithal to say, I am not wearing tights or um, even the, uh, going for the, like the Renaissance route too. Yeah. <laughs> there's just, there were some odd choices and I think, what made it successful and i'm sure they had some sort of eureka moment was that's all well and good to put it in our actual history but let's put it in our future's history you know like what what makes star trek star trek and and going back and meeting zephram conquering and the idea of first contact was something that had been talked about throughout the different series to that point and I think this was just a really cool time to tell this story. And, you know, of course, our heroes are going to have a, a role to play in that moment of, you know, our future's history. But um, it, it's it's kind of I just always love like, you know, watching behind the scenes things in movies or, you know, the what you or what we left behind documentary where they're in the writer's room and they're breaking a new story for, you know, like a future season of Deep Space Nine or whatever. I love hearing Mm-hmm. writers talk about the different things that they went through to get to the story that they did. And, um, and again, it's, a, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of those ideas were, were only briefly considered, you know, it's, you know, as far as thinking of like how crazy that would be to do, you know, these Renaissance stories or, you know, medieval or whatever. And so then just kind of like, okay, let's, let's figure it out. We're going to go back to first contact and then, how how's that going to happen? It's going to be the board because that's something that's really important in Picard's history that we've we've watched, you know, over over a number of seasons. How that's affected him, and you know, which really brings the character piece into it. And I think after having just come off of Generations, seeing and, and I mean even really the series as a whole, but seeing the dynamic between Picard and Data, you know, I think it's they saw that like that there was something there and obviously those are two very big stars of the show you know kind of fan favorites so um i don't know i love i love hearing these these different types of stories from when they're coming up with these things so i'm I'm glad that they had that in there and and really talked about it pretty in depth yeah i think the, the the best part for me was when they were talking about the choice of first contact and and in all honesty, you know, that time period is the one that really makes the most sense as to what the Borg would go back to because hum- humanity is really at its most vulnerable, really, other than maybe, I guess, you know, 
the creation of the world, you know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, you know, we have absolutely no technology. But I mean, this 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 is a place, though, too, where, you know, instead of that, you are going to be getting a humanity that would be probably worth assimilating as opposed yeah. to not. Um, why Why would the board care about, you know, humanity with no technology whatsoever, you know, so uh, other than like bronze you know weapons so yeah <laughs> you know that doesn't really make a lot of sense it really um so uh, yeah i love that and and the, just their their talk about you know they're playing kind of fast and loose with even just the, you know world war three and you know all of that stuff like they weren't super specific there uh for a lot of different reasons which i thought were really interesting in the book as well and they all made sense and i think they it's what again what makes the movie work is that it's kind of like this nebulous terrible time for humanity where you know we've almost destroyed ourselves and you know we're we're coming out of it and you know so i i think it helps the story in so many ways um because, you know, even just as a case in point, I think, you know, Lily being who she is, um, is and where she is in the Star Trek timeline allows her to be able to see things in Picard that he can't see in himself um, and that nobody would be able to challenge him on. Um, and yet. She can because she's lived it so so recently, so. You know, I, I think all of that is so great in the book. And then, you know, we have a, a bunch of new things that we get in the book. And one of them, obviously, is I loved reading about and I always love seeing because I'm such a huge fan of the starships in, in Star Trek, um, as I ranted about earlier, uh, <laughs> the new Enterprise, you know, creating the Enterprise E. And, and, and you know, if, in all honesty, uh, if anybody loves, uh, you know, starships and stuff, they have probably read a lot of this stuff but getting to see some of the pictures was great but you know i love the reasoning behind the why of what this ship looks like you know really putting you know I, I, john eves is is really such a genius in that sense of rationalizing okay i'm creating this new star trip why is it going to look like this you know and and um what w- what's the rationale behind the design in the first place? Uh, and so I, I think this book does a great job of, of doing that really, really well. And of course, giving some great visuals uh, for, for that too. So. Yeah, it was, it's, I, I liked hearing from John Eves, but even I think it was Herman Zimmerman or somebody like one of the production designers that basically said, I don't have time to design a new ship. You do it. And so he was, he's like, oh, I, I am designing the new Enterprise. Okay. And, you know, like no small feat, you know, obviously, even at that time, fans are going to scrutinize the heck out of it. And the level of thought and care, just like you said, that went into every little design element was, was really interesting, you know, from taking the saucer of the Enterprise D, turning it sideways basically turning it 90 degrees so that it's you know more oval like longer front to back you know getting rid of the neck that was such a you know a, a point you know we saw it in the original series we saw it in the movies we've seen it in next generation you know the neck of the enterprise getting 
phaser like crazy. And so he's like, yeah, let's not have that anymore. You know, and just these, the level of detail that he put in, into it um, is amazing. And then, and then even the model, like the model makers, they're putting like little scenes mm-hmm. inside the windows, including, and I need to find a picture of this cause I don't, I don't think they had a picture of it, but the, the chalk outline in the, um, observation lounge. I think they said yep. that there was like, oh, there's like a scene stage that there might have been a murder in the, you know, like just because they were having fun, they knew it would never be seen on screen, but they wanted to do something like that just to have it for their own. And I, I think that it mean, shows how much the people that made it care. But I love, you know, hearing those stories or reading those stories in there for, you know, from the people that made it and how I don't know when all of these interviews happened for this book, but at what at whatever time they were had these people still clearly had a lot of fond memories of designing the ship and putting putting their stamp basically on the future of star trek from that point on yeah i i 100% agree um you know if there's 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 only like one big criticism i actually have of the book and we're talking about new things i wish that there had been more of a discussion about the creation of the new uniforms for mm. this there's this a little bit of a mention there um but to me you know the uniforms are also a huge part of 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 star trek and i would have really have liked to seen that um in in the book and they really don't go into it at all and and what the thought process was behind creating these uniforms and you know why this look i think that would have been really nice yeah, I totally agree because these are like my favorite uniforms, kind of probably close to maybe slightly above the monster maroons. <laughs> so I like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what it is about these ones, but I really do like them, and I totally agree. I wish they would have. I mean, the book's not that long; they could have had a, a short chapter on that. Yep, absolutely. So, um, you know, they they do. A great job, I think, of uh, talking through the choices they made with, uh, you know, creating the Borg for the big screen, uh, which I think is is really important uh, for uh, this movie. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think they do a great job not only with the um, artwork and the pictures that they show, um, but I think they just do a great job of um, talking through, okay, you know, what it means to bring something from television to the big screen in the first place and and the things that you have to think about when not only creating the new Borg ship, you know, and and updating the cube, but updating the Borg and their look themselves. Yeah, from it, just another example of the thought that went into creating these things. I mean, they they still wanted to kind of go with the, the dead skin look, the white pale skin, but it, it also had... You know, you know the different paint tones. I mean, they they talk so much, you know, in there about the colors that they were using, and even you know to some extent they they mentioned the color that they developed for Vulcans, like the color of their skin. But you know, for the Borg, they wanted it to be like, well, they've got flesh, but it's kind of dead, rotting flesh, and we want to make it look like that. And that was one of the things I thought was coolest when we saw the Borg for the first time seeing the movie that they looked like Borg. I mean, we knew what they were, but they just looked so much more menacing. And 
you know, like they, they redesigned the costumes for the actors so that, um, they weren't as haphazard as they were when they were making the show, but they were also, um, able to swap pieces out so that the same eight actors could play various different configurations of Borg. Like the, the costumes were essentially like modular, I guess, but, um, I, it was really funny, you know, the, like a lot of the stuff is stuff we've probably seen in the behind the scenes featurettes and things like that. But, you know, from the, the design of the board queen and creating kind of a, a crown on the back of her head, um, it was just, you know, it's not all new information, but it's, it's just another fun time to kind of read about it again and, and refresh our memories on how they came up with all this stuff. And again, it's like, the that look of the board continued on through Voyager and you know that's the look that they kind of jumped off for from in Star Trek Picard you know the board were kind of updated again but it was kind of based on these Borg not the Borg from the show and um so it was fun seeing like all the drawings that they did and you know the thoughts behind why the Borg were looking like the way they did I you know, he did a really good job describing that. Yeah, I I could not agree more. And you know, I obviously somebody who loves what they came up with, and I think it was a hundred percent what you needed when you were jumping to the big screen. And it's what you expected, right? Like you know, um, I think one of the things they actually did well uh, in Star Trek Generations was that they upgraded the bridge uh, for the Enterprise D because you're in widescreen, and so basically in some ways kind of playing with the idea this is what was always there you just missed you know uh and Mm -hmm. in some it it almost feels like that you know because when you think about star trek has has done this it did it with the klingons and 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 upgraded their look for when they came into the films uh and and now to do that same thing with the borg you know i think star trek fans are so used to that um that it makes a lot of sense that, that they did that here with the borg um you know, one of the other really big things uh, is the fact that they chose Jonathan Frakes to be the director, and they talk a lot about that. And, you know, nobody that they mentioned in their search here was somebody I'd really heard of, so I'm glad that they went with Frakes. Um, but I also think the reason that this movie turns out so well with with him as, as the director is that he intimately knows the crew, the characters, and the series so well. Um, and for this to be his first major film to direct uh, looks incredible. I mean, and it holds up. And I think it, this, as they as they talk through that choice, and you're reading this book, and you're looking at all these pictures, and what the movie turns out to be, you're like nodding your head, yes, <laughs> this was the choice you should have made. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't recognize a lot of the directors they were naming to that they, you know, I don't know who, I don't know. I mean, the guy that directed Star Trek Generations was David Carson. He directed episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation in the past. Um, and that was great. And so I think what they were thinking is we want to go to somebody who has a certain style or 
has done a certain type of movie in the past or whatever. And so, yeah, we're, they're kind of thinking of these kind of auteur directors or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, like as, as they kind of were gravitating more towards Frakes, I, I don't think he actually wanted to do it. He didn't want that weight on his shoulders. Um, but then to hear like Rick Berman uh, and some of the others talk about how once they kind of got him in their mind, it was kind of a no brainer for them and, and, and even rehashed some of the things that a lot of us know about Jonathan Frakes, about how he got his start as a director on Star Trek. And, you know, he said he wanted to do it. And then, you know, here he is like, you know, years later, like actually directing a feature film, like his first feature film and having it be this smash hit. And it very well could have, not worked out very well at all. I mean, you know, we all know he's a, a great director, but you know, it's to some extent again. I mean, it's his first movie, and not only is he not only is he going to direct it, he's also going to be one of the major stars in it. And and I don't know, like it's just he he was the perfect choice for this movie. Um. It's it's one of those ones where like I I don't know who could have done this even as well yeah. as him. Well, and I think you know uh, what's what's great is you're uh, reading the book and you're hearing about Frakes. You know, one of the the beautiful things too is that you know they don't make Star Trek movies for a lot of money, which is ridiculous that that they didn't until uh, you know JJ came along, but. You know, you're reading about him talking with ILM with the effects and everything, and you know, ILM's the best. And this movie clearly still looks great, yeah, uh, because of that. You know, so and 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 part of that, you know, is is has nothing to do with Frakes, but it just it's another part of the thing that they talk about in the book. And he got blessed by the fact that he got to work with a lot of the best. Um, you know, and and two, the fact that Frakes is working in in concert with people like Herman Zimmerman and those type of people who have been working on Star Trek for so long. And, and they really, I think what they did is they did a great job of translating the, the next generation to the big screen. Um, and because of the film, you know, they were able to give it a, a moodier feeling and it it to me it all just works and part of that does come i think down to the fact that frakes does a great job of giving them a good visual language and the, and the shot composition that he gives them um you know everything really just works here and you know i think it, it's it's fun to have been able to to get this book and be able to go back to it now all i want to do is to watch the movie again i haven't had a chance to do so since i've read it but you know, Casey, if if you were going to rate this, what do you think you would rate this book? Well, and I, I will say just to jump off of something you just said there, I, I did have a chance to watch it since I read this book, and I'm so glad I did, and you should too. And anybody listening to this, if you have ever enjoyed this movie in the past and you read this book, you're going to, I think, enjoy it so much more. Um, You know, I, I just... It, such a good movie and it's it's hard not to rate the book what i would want to rate the movie um but um you know with you know as far as rating a book i i think i would give this i'd give it a four out of five 
and I'd probably even like a four and a half, but, um, cause it, it's just such a, a gorgeous book to look at. If I was going to have something sitting on my coffee table, this would be a really good one to do. Um, you know, there were things I do feel like we're missing. Like, like, like you mentioned, I, I, um, and, until you said it, I didn't realize that I was missing out on wanting to know more about the uniforms or just the costumes really for the movie. Um, and you know, there were, there was editorial problems. There was, there was quite a few typos throughout, but like, um, and some, slightly silly ones i guess at one point michael dorn was referred to as michael dorf i think they combined michael dorn and wharf um but yeah i mean i think a four four and a half easily um it's just it's gorgeous yeah i i think you know because you know the way they do it on letterbox it's a four out of five and i do think it would have been better if they had been a couple of things in there especially we talked about like talking about the production design in reference to the costume design and and not just the costume design for the board but you know obviously the uniforms uh, would have been great uh, and even just talking a little bit more in depth about the costume design for uh, you know that post World War 3 world I think that would have been really cool so, yeah. uh, otherwise, you know, this is a great book and I think it's honestly, I was thinking about this Casey. It's the perfect book to give as a, uh, a gift during Christmas to yeah. a Star Trek fan. You know, it's, it's great. So yeah, I, this is, it, it's come out at the perfect time and in all honesty, I couldn't recommend it more. So we don't get enough of these reference books. We need more. I think this one proves it. I'm not talking technical manuals. I'm talking about, you know, like you, you said earlier, the stuff that Star Wars does. And I mean, there's Harry Potter books like this out. And I mean, Star Trek has never been great on the merch, I feel like. And I, I think this is one of those books that uh, it shows that they can do it. And now I, I can't wait for the Star Trek 2. And, you know, if they did this for all the movies, maybe not all the movies, but if, you know, we can come back to this again sometime. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Um, I, I'm very excited that we're going to be getting uh, the Star Trek II uh, version of this book next year. I can't wait for that. Uh, and I wish that they would do more of these type of things, you know, for the rich history of, of Star Trek. Uh, and, um, you know, yeah, we'll see what they do next. But I'm excited, you know, Casey, because our next episode, we're going to be talking about Ships the Line, which is the first literary introduction of the Enterprise E. So, which, you know, we realized after we inserted this book, oh yeah, we're doing that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> so I'm really excited to actually go back and, and talk about that. Essentially a prequel to Star Trek First Contact. Yes, exactly. So, well, uh, before we get to that, uh, where can people find you, Casey, if they want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on? Yeah, you can find me on social media under the name Knitting Trekkie. I'm on Goodreads and Letterboxd mostly and uh, lurk in Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I also am known to lurk in the Babel Conference on Facebook. And then you can also find me uh, doing another podcast called Mickey's Marvels, which is um, we just review all sorts of things under the Disney umbrella, like classic Disney, Star Wars, Marvel, National Geographic, 
to get into the nonfiction. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. Well, uh, you could find me all over the place uh, on social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, uh, under the name MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me, of course, here on the network, not talking Star Trek and the 602 Club, where we talk about all of the other fandoms we love. So I hope that you will check that out. And of course, you can also find me here on the network doing Warp 5, talking about Star Trek Enterprise, The Orb, talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Saddle Up, about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango, talking about Star Trek Picard. Over on the Nerd Party Network, there are two shows that I'm on. One is called Owl Post. Did that with Drea Kaufman, and we talked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. Last but not least, I do aggressive negotiations with the great John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.